media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at uh, this whole passage in your Bible. It's probably broken up to about four different passages or breaks in uh, this passage. You'll, you'll see, you know how you have headings in your Bible? A lot of people have headings and say, okay, under this section, these three verses, this is what it means. Well, we're going to be covering uh, today in the next couple of weeks about four of those because they really purposely link together, even though they're separated out in your Bible, just for descriptive purposes. But we're going to see that they are really necessary for us to take this in context. Uh, that song that we just sang, how many of you sang that before? Maybe grew up singing it, okay? Have you, you know, do you ever feel like a hypocrite when you're singing that song? I mean, there's a part of us that really, I mean, when we wake up in the morning as, as a Christ follower, I want that to be my life. I truly want that to be my life. I want that to be truly the song of my heart. And yet, you know, you sing it and it's, it's that part all. If it said, I surrender some, if I surrender 55%, well, at that point, I'm buying in, okay? But it said, I surrender all, even though that is our desire, how do we really live that out? What does that look like? Well, I hope in the next couple of weeks that we can examine this, this high call of Christ, and that we would see that God has called us to a surrender of death to self, and he has not asked us to bargain with him. See, when it's 55% or 65%, or let's even go as far to say that you're just this sold-out Christian and you go 80%, there's still a bargaining because you're leaving 20% back. You know, there's something you say, okay, God, you can have this, 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 and this, but keep your hands kind of off here. I want to direct this part of my life. And that's all of us, and we're going to see this morning because that's our nature. Once the nature, once we sin entered into our lives and, and we came into this fallen state, so after Adam and Eve, after Genesis 3, every one of us have entered into this state where we want to captain our own ship. We, we want at least to have a very loud say in the direction of our lives. And yet is this call of Christ in Luke 9, 23, when he said, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself... Take up his cross daily and follow me. Is there room for bargaining in this bold claim of Christ? There's not. In fact, as we begin to look into it this morning, uh, most of us maybe are familiar with that verse. Um, But have you ever considered what it really means in, in real life? You know, this is one of those verses that sounds so good at a distance. This is one of those verses that looks so good when you put it on the wall of your office or something, you know. Take up your cross. You know, it's one of those verses that just says, yes, I want to be that guy, that gal. I want to live that life. And yet, when we get really close and we get really personal with it, it's very demanding. And so it's one of those things, makes a great plaque. But it's a demand that at times almost seems impossible. It almost really seems impossible in this human state to surrender all. And so uh, there's going to be times that even that it's going to seem irrational. Because there's going to be things, you know, just like what Paul was writing to the Corinthians. He says, man, the cross is foolishness to them. Why? They just didn't get it. 
And if you don't get the cross, you don't see who Jesus really is, the call of Christ, this call to death to self, this call to take up your cross daily, really isn't going to make sense. It's not just going to conflict with your sin nature. It's going to conflict with your mental faculties. I hope you see that as we go through this a little bit this morning. Because again, we want to live this verse. And and our desire this morning is to look at it in its fullness as much as we can, not to water it down or to modify it and make it into some more easily digestible version. This is a radical call. And it remains as the foundational bedrock of what it means to follow Christ. When he says to follow me, this is really... You know, we can't add a whole bunch more than, than what this is a foundation for. To follow him means to deny ourselves and to die to self. And again, the major problem with this is that we were born with a nature that is not in agreement with that. So this call to take up our cross daily is to die. In this case, to die to self. That's what the cross was. The cross was not used in any of Jesus' time, as a means of behavior modification. I mean, maybe in general it was, because it would make an example of that person who committed the crime. And so maybe others had their behavior modified because they would see this person, this thief, this convict on the cross, and, and that convict would die. But for the person who's on the cross, it was not a means of behavior modification. It was a means of death. Now, I'm not trying to be silly or funny with that because we really, if he calls us to take up our cross daily, we need to get that, folks. As followers of Christ, as ones who really, truly desire to follow Christ, we need to understand that God has not called us into behavior modification. Now, certainly, as we follow Christ, hopefully our behavior is modified, okay? Hopefully, we do more things that reflect the love of Christ, the grace of God, and all these things in our lives. So, ultimately we will have a modified behavior as we become more and more like Christ. But that wasn't the call of Christ to behave in a moderate way. The high call of Christ was to die. That's what the cross was. Crucifixion ended in death. They didn't keep somebody up there for a couple hours and say, okay, you had a little bit of punishment, come on down now. There was one intention of the cross, death. And so when he invites us into it, he is calling us to die. Next week, we're going to look at three things that, that need to die in our lives and for us to, to, to truly begin to follow Christ in this meaningful pathway that he is calling us to. But this morning, we want to look at the foundation of this verse. So in verse 23, when he says, If you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Look at verse 24. Just in case we're thinking, well, you know, I think he's using some language, but he doesn't really mean for us to die here. Okay, This whole talk of the cross, uh, maybe he's just kind of using that as an illustrative purposes. Now look what it says in verse 24. For whoever shall uh, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's kind of hard to get around that Jesus was talking about how he wanted us to died as something, that there was something dying in us in order to follow him. So what has to die? Next week, again, we're going to go more intensely into that part, but I think we begin to find the answer back in verse 22. 
when Jesus says that one has to deny himself. Jesus is saying that there's something about us in our nature that is part of that active, decisive uh, decision-making process that daily has to be influenced by him and him alone. How many of you like surrender? Do you just wake up in the morning and go, you know, I'm just ready to surrender today? Isn't it amazing that even some of the most timid people that we might know, you know, you put them in a corner, they don't like surrender. In fact, if anything, even a, a part of our national pride is that we in Americans, we don't back down. You know, we kind of, we love the heroes, the two outs in the bottom of the ninth. I don't know if you watched the Braves probably about a week ago, but, uh, you know, two outs, bottom of the ninth, truly a 3-2 count. And, you know, one of our Braves hits a home run and we win the game. Or the other night when Nick Markakis comes off his first game back, hits the home run, we win the game, walk off over. We love those kind of things. This never say die attitude. We champion people that overcome things. You know, we go to cancer survivor walks and you see those people. And if that doesn't move your heart, when you see hundreds of people walking around the track with these shirts that said, you know, I beat cancer, cancer survivor. We love that. We champion that. And rightly so. But this same wiring that wants us to champion, to never give up, to always be there and always, you know, don't die to that last breath. When that hits us spiritually, we don't all of a sudden become void of this nature. And we certainly don't become void of this desire for this fighting spirit. So how do we do this? We're not a raise the white flag kind of people. So is that what Christ has called us to become? That we raise the white flag? Yes. So how do you do that? How do you take a human nature that values not surrendering, and all of a sudden, this call of Christ that says, no, to follow me, to truly be my disciple, to truly follow me, you have to surrender, even surrender to the point of dying to self. Do you see the conflict there? Do you see that this isn't just a one occasion thing that he... Ask us to do it. It'd be one thing if he said, once in your life, once in your life, take up your cross and follow me. Well, I can do that. You give me the right Sunday morning, the right songs, the right spirit. On that one, I'll champion that. But what does Christ say? Do this daily. So even if you champion that today and you came to a place of surrender in your life and Christ was supreme above all things in your life, when you go to bed tonight and then you wake up in the morning by God's grace, guess what? He invites you all over again. The call to surrender, this call for the white flag is there once again. This amazing thing. So how do we do that? How does a fighting spirit overcome the odds, take no prisoner type people, become a person and a people that gladly submit to the call of Christ, dying to self and surrendering and to do it with joy. I think we've all seen the occasion when a brother has been made go, I'm sure this has happened in your house, brother's been told, sister, you go tell her you're sorry. And the words, I'm sorry, comes out. But that little heart is going, I do not surrender. 
I do not surrender at all. I'm not sorry at all. I'll say the words because I know mom and dad have some power here and I, I want to be in good graces, but my heart is not going to be compliant to this. That never happens in your house, does it? <laughs> so how do we do that? How do we not just say the words of Christianity, say the words and sing the songs, I surrender all? How do we actually live this out and to live it out not just compulsed to do it, but with joy, because that's the call of Christ. And if we're just compulsed to do it, then what a drudgery this life is going to be. And yet what Christ has taught us to is not a life of drudgery, not this submission that ends and just frowns and, and, and despair. No, he calls us into to do this, to do it with joy. And, and we see this even in his life. He takes on the cross with joy. For joy, he takes on the cross. How do we do that? Well, that's kind of the $6 million question today. How do we not only do this in a compliant attitude, but in a joyful attitude? I think the, the, the answer, the key, is going to be a couple verses back. Go up to verse 18. Look at Luke 9, 18. Again, in your Bible, how many of you have a Bible that puts this under a different section? You know, you have a section for this and a section for that. And sometimes when we see those sections, we kind of break up those passages. This is all one event. What has previously happened, Jesus has fed the 5,000. It's one of the occasions that he has done this incredible miracle of feeding thousands and thousands of people. And they are overwhelmed. They're drawn to his ministry because of what they can get. And it's right after this that we see him spending time with the disciples and we see him spending times in this conversation. And in your Bible, it's probably three different sections or three different headings, but it's all one event. And I think it's important for us to go back to verse 18 to see this foundational uh, call of Christ and what he says in order us to figure out the fullness of how we actually live out verse 22 and 23. So look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Again, he's wrapping up what we call the Galilean ministry. Okay, He's just fed 5,000. There's been a whole bunch of talk about Jesus. And people, you know, he is the hot topic. If they hashtag back in those days, Jesus feeding 5,000 would have been the hashtag that would be trending. Okay, just he is the current talk of that area. And he asked them, you know, what are, what are people saying? Now, what is the purpose of Christ asking this of his disciples? It's because he's, he wants to be popular. Hey, what are they, what are they saying about me? No, he's getting at the root of something that we're going to see in the next verse. And he says, will you kind of do a quick survey? Will you tell me what people are saying about me? Now, he's headed for Jerusalem. He's going from feeding these 5,000. He's headed to Jerusalem. Eventually, he's going to be arrested, falsely tried, and crucified, put to death. So by this time in his ministry, people certainly had some knowledge of who Christ is. They had heard about miracles. They had heard about his opposition sometimes to the religious leaders. He had made a name or at least a, a, a reputation. And so Jesus asked, hey guys, as you talk out there, as you go to the market to pick up bread, as, as you go out here, maybe spend time with your own family, who do people say that I am? 
Look at verse 19. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. But they give various answers. They said, some believe that you are John the Baptist who's come back to life. Some think that you're one of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah that has come back to life. Others just say they don't know what prophet, but they just think that you are somebody really, really special. And so what do we know by their answer? That the people thought that Jesus was religious in nature, spiritual in nature, that he was a good teacher. Remember it said that he taught like nobody else ever taught before. And that he was possibly even righteous. That he was a really, really good man. So they see him as this spiritual person, a spiritual leader. They see him as significant, but there is something tragically missing by those responses. They don't see him as the Messiah. Because John the Baptist wasn't the Messiah, and Elijah wasn't the Messiah, and the Old Testament prophets weren't the Messiah. And so Jesus takes their response, and he asks them now a personal question. In verse 20, Luke 9, 20. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus goes from the public to the personal. From the collective crowd to the individual. To a general consensus to the private statement and mind of all those disciples. And he asked this pertinent question, how do you define me? Who who do you say that I am? Peter, as he often does, responds for the group. (laughs) And when Peter does this, both when he says things that are very, very right and times that he says things that are very, very wrong, he usually is representing the group. He's not just speaking out his own mind. Usually he is, even when he said bad things and we're going, how could Peter have said that? He's really representing the other 10 or 11 at at that time also. And and I think this is probably the heartbeat of the disciples. When Peter says this, he is the one pronouncing it. But I do think that there's kind of a collective mindset. You are the Christ. Matthew records it in his gospel. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes on and talks about, hey, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is something that is spiritual in nature. And the very spirit of God has been the one that revealed this to you. And this is a very important statement that you make, Peter. Now, what does this statement in verse 19 and 20 have to do with his call for us to daily take up our cross? Please understand what happens here. Before Christ throws out a new way of defining what it means to follow him, what it means to actually deny yourself, before he defines that and what that's going to mean, he asks for another definition to be the foundation. Who do you say that I am? Here's a key to the Christian life, guys. Until we define who Christ is, the Christian life is going to be at times joyful, but at times a great, great chore. That the only way that we could ever call 
self-denial, that we could come into a place of surrender, that we could come to a place where we truly would die to self, is when we have first defined, hey, we're not doing this to a good teacher. We're not doing this to a righteous influence. We're not talking about somebody who's just popular among the peoples. We're talking about this is the son of the mighty God. Do you get that? There will never be. We're already opposed. Remember our wiring, our sin nature? We're already opposed to surrender. It's not within us to desire that, and especially to desire that with joy. But I would say that it is impossible to do what Christ says to do in verse 22 and 23 if we have not made that personal proclamation of our own lives that we find in verse 20. Does that make sense? One of my favorite phrases in discipleship. Does that make sense? Because until we make that connection, until you know who you're surrendering to, there's always going to be a pullback. There's always going to be a hesitancy. I mean, right now we got thousands of different things going on and what's the code for this and what's the rule for this and what governor has said this and what city mayor has said this and all these different things. And it's kind of confusing. And so we have all kinds of responses to it. Why well, will? Oh, no, I will never. I will die first before I do. We have all kinds of responses. And I challenge you this morning that that's how it, until we define who Christ is, until we come to a place in our lives that we can truly say with all authenticity, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that until Bobby Lynx's heart and mind begins to kind of somewhat comprehend the magnitude of that, the majesty of that. I just know Bobby Lincoln's well, way too well. He's not going to surrender. Oh, he'll surrender a couple pity things. Because that looks, you know, pretty cool. I mean, you are a pastor. There's got to be a little bit of piety about you. He goes from the public and he goes to the personal. And sometimes our public proclamation of the things of Christ is much easier than our private proclamations of the things of Christ. That sometimes we can say, yes, thou art the Christ, when everybody is singing that song. And yet, what does Christ do here? He, he narrows the vision. He narrows the, the perspective. And he says, who do you say that I am? And that is a question that every single human being will one day answer. I venture this. It is a question that every single human being answered daily in our lives. And except for the grace of God, I know what my answer would have been. Except for the extreme love of Christ that he would die in my place, that he would be the pursuer. I wasn't pursuing him. He pursued me. He left the 90 in line to, to come after me. Had the Holy Spirit not wooed in my heart, I would not be a Christian. I didn't come to Christ. He came to me. And yet now with his coming, will I truly embrace that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? You see, Christ sees it as essential to get him right before we can even begin to get the Christian life right. So what does he do? He begins to define who he is 
and what he's all about. Look at verse 22. Jesus saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now that sounds a lot more like defeat than it does victory, doesn't it? The guy that you've been following for three years, the one that you think, you know, at least there's been murmurings in the crowds, you know, okay, we can really make him king. In fact, in the next verse, we will see that Christ says, okay, don't tell anybody in verse 23, it's not going to be up here, but in verse 23, if you look down, he says, no, don't tell people this. And I don't know about you, but I've always been amazed when Jesus says, okay, don't tell people that I'm, you know, that this is what I'm all about. Why didn't he do that? Because they were so ready to make him king so that they could overthrow the Roman government. They had one thing in mind. We need a Messiah, but we need an earthly Messiah because we want to establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus said over and over and over, this is not my kingdom. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And it's one of heaven. And it's not one of earth. And so he tells, okay, guys, I'm telling you because I want you to properly define me. Because I know that you can't properly live out the Christian call and this high call to die to self unless you really know who I am. And, and so I want you to know what I'm all about. I'm all about to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That sounds like defeat, guys. I I realize that, but I'm telling you, it's victory. And it's not until afterwards that those same men that he responds to that day begin to taste the victory that was there. It's not until Pentecost that they begin to see this emblazoned version, vision of, of, wow, All that Christ said, this was the purpose. So that we could become the very sons and daughters of the living God. The word surrender is hard for all of us. But what we need to begin to do according to this scripture, I would believe, is that we have to redefine surrender. And with each word, Christ demonstrates a new way of thinking when it comes to defining victory and defeat. You see, it wasn't the mission of Christ to see how long he could live. Christ didn't come and he didn't say, okay, you know, I hope I can at least max out 80, 90 years. This was never the mission of Christ. What was the mission of Christ? To seek and to save those who are lost. He's really clear about his vision from the very beginning. Before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us, he's very clear about his vision. And it wasn't maximize life, the years of life, the joyment of life. No, it was to come and to pay a ransom, a redeeming ransom for the sins of mankind so that those who place their trust in him would become the very family of God. He's very clear about that. His whole purpose is to die for the sins of man. His purpose is not... To, to put out a couple beats of Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. His motivating factor, the entirety of his life, is what is the mission of the Father? What brings pleasure to the Father? What is the call? And we saw that culminated a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the prayer of Christ in Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. Was that a, a point of surrender? If you didn't hear that sermon, go back and listen to it. Because it was the the ultimate point of surrender. 
His full human nature, this humanity he has, does not want the cross. And we went into, I'm not going to re-preach the whole sermon, but we went into deaths of why there would have been a a repelling away from that. And yet how Christ, the servant son, not my will, but thy will be done. So how do we turn Christ's words and his mind into our mind. Is it as simple as saying a prayer every morning, not my will, but thy will be done? Maybe a good starting place. But it won't last very long if there's not this foundational definition in our hearts and our minds of who Christ is. And we're certainly not going to have joy. One of the most amazing verses to me in the Bible is when we see this humanity of Christ, but yet we see this servanthood of Christ, is Hebrews 12, 2, when it says, who for the joy was that was set before him endured the cross. This is the same guy, let this cup of wrath pass. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what I, I want my life to be. Not a life that is compulsed, you know, somehow there's this compulsory, you know, act this way, but for the joy set before me by the Father himself to die daily and to live for Christ. I would hope that that would be your desire. And some of you may feel really close to that now. Some of you may feel, hey, <laughs> That's probably never going to happen. I feel so far away from that. I mean, do you get it? Before we can properly define surrender to Christ, we have to properly define who Christ is. It's really what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Turn in your Bibles real quick over to there. It will be up here on the screen. But look what he says in Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind, this understanding, this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can't even think like this except for Christ and the work that Christ has done. This isn't something that we just kind of drill up in human efforts. But here's not a suggestion, but a command in Philippians 2.5. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And different versions are going to say it different ways. But it's saying, okay, this is yours only by Christ Jesus. And this is a mind that is like Christ Jesus. And then Paul at length goes into a description of this mind of Christ. Instead of just saying, okay, have the mind of Christ... He begins to describe what this mind actually looked like. Verse 6 through 8. Who though he was being, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see what just happened? In this invitation to take up your cross daily, I mean, what what does that mean? 
I mean, does it mean you go home and you get a couple of four-by-fours today? You construct some crude cross? And tomorrow at work, you're going, okay. <laughs> Do we all go over to Ricky and say, Ricky, I, I need a cross. I need about six foot high and try to make it pretty light, though, okay? Can you make it out of basswood? Because <laughs> I don't really want a heavy cross. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? Paul just described it in Philippians chapter 2. Humbled ourselves and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Took on the form of a servant. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that this is mine in Christ Jesus and not for Bobby to have to construct. Because I think there's a little bit too much Corinthian in me that I would look at the cross as failure, as defeat, and I wouldn't get it. And it would be I would be described, as Paul said, the foolishness. And yet Christ, in the very Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit working active in your life, allows us not only to become obedient to this call of calling uh, of taking up a cross, but to do it with joy. Wow. There's a measure of maturity that we don't quickly come to. But I promise you this. The more you define Christ correctly, the more that your mind and your heart will be compelled to take up the cross daily and to do it with joy. Let me give you a word of warning here. There's going to be times in our lives as Christians that we're going to be tempted to do the things of Christ without having the mind of Christ. And you're going to be frustrated. I have been there. And if there's one thing I kind of have learned to despise, and that's religion, a law apart from the beauty of Christ. But there's going to be days that we're tempted to do that. That we just kind of follow this moral mantra of our life. And, and in one way, you know, I'm glad that at least we have a moral mantra. But what father or mother does not want their child to have joy in obedience? Not just obedience, but to have joy. Isn't that the ultimate end? That is, you instruct your sons that one day they go, for joy I did what dad and mom wanted. I mean, you write that day down in your diary. That would be on the calendar. June 17th, 2019. Our son did something for joy. And not just because if he didn't, he'd get in trouble. What parent doesn't decide? And what father Does not desire that for you and I in our Christian walk. When we try to live the life of surrender on our own apart from the work of Christ, it is one of frustration. It will be one of failure. It will be one that at best is short-lived, guys. To endure this, to do it daily, 
for the, the, your remaining life and to do it with joy, there's only one way you can do that, and that is to understand, to grasp, and to answer in your own heart and your own mind, who do you say that I am? And for you to have, maybe in different words, but that answer of, of Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we enter into this uh, short little series, looking at this passage, Father, what does it mean to take up our cross daily, Father? What does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean that a part of us has to die? Father, on the surface, we know enough Bible, and we know enough Bible lingo, perhaps, to know that this is a good thing. And yet, Father, it is really hard to live out and especially hard to live out with any type of joy. And so, Father, we are in such need for understanding. And, Father, we thank you that that as we look at these verses in context, Father, that, that Christ preceded this great call by a great proclamation of who he was. And, Father, I pray that that's where we would be able to to come and rest and, 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 Father, find our foundation this morning. That as we would entertain that question, who do you say that I am? That we would be able to say with all authenticity, with all faith, only because of the grace you have given us, that we would be able to proclaim, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, Father, that would allow us to have a foundation that when you call us to die here and to give of self and to deny this, Father, then it makes sense. So, Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you did, you didn't give us this test one time and we failed and, and you discarded us. But, Father, that day by day, through the power of your Spirit, you're helping us to capture what this mind of Christ really is. And so we thank you for your patience. We pray that even this week, that we would entertain this thought every single morning. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let this be our heartbeat. Let this be the foundation of our service as we pray all these things in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.